So the big tax question is this, how do wealthy people keep their money working for them when selling their business, real estate, or other highly appreciated assets without paying hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars in tax? What if we as business and real estate owners who have poured blood, sweat, and tears to growing our wealth and who didn't hire expensive tax attorneys and CPAs to map out an exit strategy knew their secrets? Instead of recreating the wheel, why can't we just model the way they deferred 30 to 50% in tax, paid off debt, funded their next business dream, and most importantly, leave a financial legacy to give to the causes we believe in most? What if their secrets weren't complicated at all? And you just need a guide who is a few steps ahead of you. That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Brett Swartz, and welcome to Capital Gains Tax Solutions. Welcome to the Capital Gains Tax Solutions Podcast, where we believe most high net worth individuals and those who help them, they struggle with capital gains tax deferral options. Not having a clear plan is the enemy, and using a proven tax deferral strategy, such as the Deferred Sales Trust, or cost segregation, or 1031 exchange when it makes sense, is the best way for you to grow your wealth. Hey, I'm your host, Brett Swartz. In each episode, I am joined by some of the best real estate minds, financial minds, and wealth minds in the world where they share their ideas, deal stories, and inspiration. So together, we can make complex tax deferral strategies simple and passive income plans achievable. I'm excited about our next guest. He is a physician by trade, but he's had real estate um, in his in his bones and his blood since a young age of 14. He's going to share that part of his story. And he wants to... He's, in a, he's on a mission to help um, create and preserve wealth for himself and his family and his partners um, and also help people to understand um, real estate as a whole. Um, and so please welcome to the show with me, Gurpreet Prada. Gurpreet, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for hosting me. Excellent. And also, Gurpreet has uh, his quick background story. He has over 2 million square feet of ownership, management, of commercial space, as well as hundreds and hundreds of multifamily properties, uh, units, uh, multifamily units, properties. And so, Gurpreet, give us a little bit more about your backstory and your current focus. Yeah. So, I started in the construction world when I was about age 14. Um, I started off actually mowing grasses and cutting people's lawns. And then I quickly realized that they needed more services than a grass cut. They needed their gutters fixed. They needed, they had patches on their roof. And eventually at the age of 14, I realized that I could hire people to work with me. So I started hiring construction crews, one or two people at a time. And they were much older than I was. I was 14 and they were in their twenties and thirties. Uh, I was able to get them to do the work. And then I figured out that I could make money on the Delta between what I was charging for their labor and what I was, what I was getting paid. Uh, so by the time I was 14, 15, 16, I had crews of between two to five people at any given time. And I was going to high school um, and I couldn't drive yet. So my construction crews would have to drop me off at school in the morning and then pick me up in the afternoon in their pickup truck and i would be calling them on the phone during the daytime from the from the call phone from the um from the pay phone in the cafeteria to see what they were doing so it gave me an experience to to figure out how to remotely manage and how to leverage my time up front and understand even at that young age what it was to make a profit and how to deal with your profit and i eventually figured out that I had to pay taxes. And that was that was a rude awakening for me. I didn't realize that taxes were such a big component of what I was going to have to do. Eventually, I went to medical school uh, and I went to a six-year program in Kansas City. So I went through an accelerated program. I have horrendous ADD. So I typically will 
look at 16 shiny objects and four squirrels at the same time and try to figure it out. Uh, I went through general surgery, anesthesia, uh, interventional pain, and then addiction. So I'm boarded in three things and have, you know, have really enjoyed that. All the while, though, I've really enjoyed commercial real estate. And I've been trying to educate myself about commercial real estate. And I came to the conclusion that really it's two different worlds. Real estate is the physical object of real estate. It's the building. It's the, it's the components of the building. It's all of those things that go in, the, the, the cleaning of it, the renting of it, the positioning of it, the branding of it, all of those things of the building. And that's really important. If you don't do that well, you lose money. But just as important, is how do you acquisition and dispose of and look at the lifeblood of that building. The lifeblood of the building is the capital that flows into it and out of it. You could lose, if you did a construction project and you thought it was going to be $100,000, and at the end of the day, somebody, you, you're getting ready to pay $100,000, but they hand you an extra bill for an extra $80,000, you go, oh my God, that's too expensive. Well, all the time, in, in the lifeblood of what we deal with, we make $100,000 of profit, and then the federal government takes away 80000 or 40000 or 50000 And so I figured out that those taxes are a very significant impediment. And I, that's not new news to anybody that's in this business. But the thing is, how do you avoid it? And how do you align your behavior with the behavior that the government wants you to pursue? Because taxes are really an incentive. They're an incentive for you to do the things that the government cannot do efficiently. They want you to produce for them the thing that they can't do. I'll give you an example. In San Francisco, they tried to build housing and they tried to build low-income housing. And the cost of low-income housing done by the state and federal government was between $250,000 to $400,000 a unit. And we both know, we all know that that's a ridiculously high amount of money to spend for subsidized housing and you would never make sense of that um and so you know in effect it's much less expensive to have the private sector do this and incentivize them to do it and so once you realize that there are incentives and these are capital creation incentives then you have to navigate how how do you best align yourself um and so that that's kind of my long and short story of, of how i got to where i did well, it's a great story, and I love how how you connect the medical world and, and the body and, and anatomy with the real estate world. And so, and to make sure I, I captured it well, and the audience maybe heard it well as well. So, the like the structure, right, the physical object of real estate. Let's say the multifamily building, the roof, the AC units, the ground, right, all of that is the first part. But the lifeblood that's going to feed this body, if you will, is the capital that's flowing in and out, whether it be income and expenses, whether it be refinance it, whether it be you know buying it, disposing of it. And at any point, <laughs> you can get a leak. And if that leak is flowing out, right, there goes your entire, your entire investment. It, it'll die. Or likewise, if you can keep it flowing well um, and, and, and in and out, uh, making sense of that, keeping the blood intact, is that a fair summary that you're going to do well in the investment? Yeah. I mean, that's, so there are really, I, so those, those are the two main components and the, 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 the thing underneath it, the, the thing that people forget about is time. That's, that flows in continuity and it goes only one direction. Um, I can make money and I can lose money. 
I can gain it and lose it. And I can do, I can come up with a creative way to do more or do less. I can gain real estate and I can lose real estate. What I can't gain is time. And so time is the most critical element that we have. And what I always was trying to figure out was, you know, from a physician standpoint, physicians make a lot of money, but they pay ridiculous amounts in taxes. And they're so busy that they never spend the time to educate themselves about all of the other elements that there are to maintain their wealth or to or to maintain their 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 financial status or to help them retire. Um, and so they're the the one thing that they can't get back is time, uh, but they can make money. And so I've always looked at, at at all of this as the lifeblood is the money, the structure is the real estate, and the underlying current of all of this is the time pressure. And once you recognize that that hidden time pressure is, is, is something that's gonna, it's gonna either benefit you or hurt you, that's gonna be the biggest thing that you have to keep, keep pay attention to. Amazing, we're gonna dive into that in just a minute here. I wanna take one other step back, back to maybe the days when you were in, in medical school, in high school, maybe even junior high and your entrepreneurial uh, um, uh, starts. And the question is this, uh, you know, I believe we've all been given certain gifts in this life, and these gifts are, are God-given gifts, and these gifts are given to us so we can be a blessing to others. So I'm curious, what was maybe the one, maybe two gifts that you believe you were given, and how do you use those gifts to help others today? Um, I think, and, and, and this may seem contrary, so I was born in North India. I grew up during a time of war, and I grew up in the Indo-Pak Wars, and so I had the the fear of death <laughs> and it it started really early because i didn't want to die in an air bomb attack uh, i had friends that died in mustard gas attacks um, and so i grew up in north india and i had that urgent sense of fear um, my parents when they relocated to the united states it, you know it was it was important for them to to give us an education so that we could go forward um, and so i have this constant background awareness of how things can go terribly wrong. But that, I think, is an incredible gift. And it gives you the hackles to know when stuff is not going like it's supposed to go. And it also allows you to be firmly grounded in real situations. And so I don't mind going into areas that are C and D grade areas, because I know what it is to deal with with, with those situations. Um, I'll give you an example. So I was, I, I was doing a rehab and I was in Chicago and I was, I was, this was during my general surgery residency and it was the weekend and I was meeting one of my crews and there was a building in a not so nice part of town. And we were looking at a window that was on the third level and I was up on the ladder. And my, my uh, construction manager was, on the ground, I was up in the air. I was looking at, at a piece of trim and I was trying to figure out whether what we could do, what, did we need to cover it with aluminum or do we need to replace it? And all of a sudden, one of the windows right below me exploded. And I thought, well, this is the strangest thing. How, why did you guys put this in so defectively? And I, I'm yelling at the contractor below. I'm like, hey, what happened to this window? What's going on here? He goes, I don't know. And then all of a sudden the window next to that exploded. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. Either the building is settling or we have a major problem. 
And by then we realized what was happening because there was a dumpster next to us and you could hear the ricochet of bullets hitting the dumpster. We, we became sniper targets and I quickly jumped off the, off the ladder, but I got grazed by a bullet on the way down and we were in the South side of Chicago. So, you know, you, you get into those situations where you have to be hyper creative and deal with those situations. Um, and you know, we, they figured out where the sniper was and they ended up dealing with that issue. Um, and, and this was a chaotic time in Chicago. It was probably like 1988, 1989. Uh, and there was a lot of gang violence and people were doing a lot of stupid stuff. Uh, and so, you know, for that particular building, I figured out that I had to make nice, nice with the local folks there. And sometimes you have to deal with people that are in gang situations that you may not normally deal with, but you have to work with them creatively to figure out how they can be stable and they can keep you safe. And so we, we figured that out. We figured out a way to, to have picnic parties for the local folks in that area. I actually hired people that were street people and gave them places to stay temporarily while we rehab the buildings. Because the other issue that we were dealing with is that while we were putting kitchens in through the front door, people were breaking in through the back door, stealing the kitchens as we moved to the next unit. So we fenced the entire building and I had some of the local folks stay there and paid for their food and paid, paid them to, to observe and watch. Uh, we had a watchdog at one point, but they poisoned the watchdog and killed it. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you have to be creative with your solutions and you have to constantly um, look at it and see what, what the right, right solution is. I know that's kind of tangential, but that's the, the ability to adapt and to, and to have some degree of stay away from bang, stay away from um, situations that can get you in trouble. I think those, those are the gifts that I have. Yeah, those are amazing gifts, and what a story! And I can't wait for the book to be released because there's there's so, so much there. We don't have time to dig into everything, but wow, the uh, growing up in a, in a war war torn country and the fear of death and and I and I don't know if this is I don't want to put words in your mouth, but once you've started there and once you've overcome that, right, and once you made this big transition to another country and then had it looks like probably amazing parents, right, to help help uh, encourage uh, um, opportunities, right, and growth. And, and then to be on the other side of that, it's sort of like, oh, I've already dealt with that. I've already been through that. I've overcome that. I can overcome this. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, it, and so my parents, my, uh, both, my, both my parents are amazing people. I mean, my mom is a mathematician. Uh, my dad was a physicist. Um, and so they're, you know, they're, they're super smart. And their whole thing was, you can set your mind to learn anything. You just have to spend the time to figure it out mm -hmm. and then create models in your head of solutions and then test those models and figure it out. And the, the faster you can iterate, the faster you can create a different model and test your model, the better off you're going to be. And so I look at everything as, you know, what's the right answer? What's the wrong answer? How do we make sure that we don't do the wrong answer? And then how do we iterate that to get better at it? And so that's that's why I look at real estate as the mechanical aspect and then the the electrical or the the flow aspect of the capital. Um, I have to figure out both in order to make it work. Excellent. So now let's dive into that exact exact topic here and understand that you said the current uh, the current underlining everything is the time pressure. 
So walk us through that concept of time pressure and walk us through um, um, how, how when you're looking at deals, right, and the velocity of, of, of the flow of, of capital in and out of that and how, what's the best way you've been able to iterate and create the models to make, to make sense of, of investments? Yeah, so the number one thing you have to realize is your time is limited. And it, it really is accentuated when you realize, when you, when you look at the profit that you're gonna make on a deal or the loss you're gonna take, your time is limited. Uh, and you have, to, you have to use time to your advantage. Um, I, I, and I, I teach by example a lot with my folks. And I'll, I'll give you the, the classic negotiation technique that I taught my baby cousin. I said, Vishal, look, the, the more time limited somebody is, the better deal you're going to get. So let's go through McDonald's drive-through and try to negotiate for the price of a hamburger. And you're going to find out that you get this burger for free if you can, if your time is on your side and time is against them. And so we did that. You know, what he did was he delayed and delayed and delayed and through the drive-through and people are backing up and then the McDonald's workers getting pissed. And eventually we got to the front and he ended up getting extra food for free because you just threw it at him to get him out of the way. And so time is your friend if you're not worried about it. If you go in to buy an air conditioner at the air conditioner store and you spend 30 minutes, 40 minutes trying to buy that air conditioner and the average person only spends four, by the time that they've invested time with you, they're going to do whatever it is to get that price down. So time is your friend in that situation. Time is your enemy when you're on the other side of it. So let's say that you do it. Let's say that you've purchased a piece of real estate, you've sold it and you've made a hundred thousand dollars on it. And you can reduce your taxes by doing a 1031 exchange and rolling it over into a new project, but you can't find another project right away. And then time is not your friend because you're gonna overpay because it takes, you gotta identify your next project or group of three in 45 days and you gotta close in 180 days. Time is not your friend. You're gonna overpay. Just like the McDonald's example, they're gonna throw, you're gonna, you're gonna be the McDonald's worker throwing money at somebody, you know, I gotta get this deal because I'm, my time is not my friend. And so once you realize that time is such a critical element, then you have to figure out how to surf time. How to, how to expand time. And that's why I'm looking at delayed sales trusts because I believe that that's a way to, I can enhance my time and I can open up the ability to not be time pressured. Uh, and that, that's, that's kind of why, why we're chatting. By the way, I, I, it's, it's a deferred sales trust, but delayed sales trust would probably be a better name for it, right? Because exactly. it's exactly what it and the essence of what it is, 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 is taking away from I, IRC 1031, which is the 1031 exchange time restrictions, 45 days to identify, 180 days to close. We call it the shotgun wedding, right? Um, and not so good versus IRC 453, which is an installment sale where, where, where time is, there's no restrictions, right? There's, there's literally, you don't have to identify, you don't have to close on anything and you can actually sit on the sidelines, all tax deferred. One of the most prolific deal sources actually out of Minnesota for a gentleman who sold in 2006 and he looked around for his 1031 property, couldn't make sense of the deals, knew it was a seller's market, sensed that the prices were at all time highs. And instead of overpaying via 1031, he moved into the deferred sales trust. He waited five years and five years from there, 
he bought back the same property when the bank called him who had foreclosed on that same property. He said, do you want to buy it? And he goes, well, maybe what's the price? And they said 40 cents on the dollar, right? You know, or 60 cents on the dollar, 40% less than what you paid for. And he said, sure. And he bought it back through his deferred sales trust, all tax deferred, which is the big elephant in the room, right? And they say, great, great. Well, we want to make sure we defer our tax, which is about can be 30 to 50% of the gain, depending on the depreciation recapture, right? That's the that's what the government's going to take for their for their for their cut. So um, the key is time and and if you can buy at optimal timing, things are on your side. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean that that's it, people run out of money because they run out of time. Um, when you go into a into a project, you have to have enough resources. And those resources have to be there for enough time. Given enough time, every deal is a good deal. But most of us run out of money because we run out of time. Um, you have to be able to, you know, if, for example, if, if you were if you were buying in a rural community and you could hold that property for 200 years, that's going to be worth something over time. But nobody looks at it that way. And we shouldn't because we're not going to be around in 200 years. But you want to you want to use time as your friend. Um, and I, I really believe that, that that is one of the critical elements that, that makes a difference. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example that I just went through. So there was a piece of property in St. Louis. It's, uh, I just closed on it a week ago, week and a half ago. And it's right next to the airport. It's on uh, a road that's perpendicular to the airport. The original group that bought it paid over 5.6 million for it. It's a 29,000 square foot um, office center that's 20% occupied that throws off a net cash flow at 20% occupancy of $6,000 net. So technically it's throwing about 6,000 net. It should be throwing 36,000 net, but the problem was one of their partners died and the other two partners didn't understand how to run it and it became vacant. Um, and now they're under time pressure because it's undergoing foreclosure. The bank is also under time pressure because they don't want that thing on their books um, and they want to get it off. So I approached them and, you know, it's a $5.6 million plus deal. Um, we did an appraisal on it. The land value is 800000 The reconstruction price is over $5 million. In an open market, given enough time, it would probably sell in the threes. Um, I ended up getting it because I was willing, I, I, I had capital laying around. I got it for 365,000. It's ridiculous. Um, and even my real estate agents jaw dropped when the bank accepted it, but I knew that they had a limitation on time. They had to get it off their books because they're getting audited next month. And so they, they don't want a bad piece of real estate on there. Uh, so I used their time urgency to help me. So walk us through for a second here. So I want to make sure I capture that because that's just incredible um, opportunity. So when you're approaching the bank and maybe you've already had a prior relationship with the bank where you've already closed deals with the bank or with the agent. So you've established that track record, right, of performance. And then, of course, you're probably gathering the facts, gathering the information. What's your motivation? What's your motivation, right? What are the time constraints? Is that essentially the first thing is you're setting up the chessboard of all the different pieces and, and it's moving? And because I, I imagine you didn't probably just say 365 within the first, you know, 24 hours, right? Of course, you did the appraisal. You went through it. So walk us through just how you're approaching that to be able to actually do that deal. Because you're right. Most people, that's unbelievable that they don't have the, they don't have the, even the courage to offer something like that, that low. Um, am I, uh, can, you, can you help us with that? 
Yeah. So <laughs> my business partner and I kind of laugh about this a little bit. Um, I feel like if I'm not embarrassed by my offer, it's not low enough. <laughs> and and that's just the reality. If if I can't, if I if I if I have to if if I can't get embarrassed by the offer, I didn't offer low enough. I should feel interior that God, that's a low offer. I would never take that, but let's try it. Um, and so that that's one of the elements. Uh, and I'm going to diverge for one second, then I'll come back to this. So we were standing in a YWCA, um, my business partner and I, and they wanted about, I think they wanted 360, 400,000 for it. And I looked at it and it was a, about a 15,000 square foot building. It needed a lot of work. And I turned around and I talked to them. I said, look, we will buy this, but I'll pay you 85,000 and I'll close in two weeks. They took, I was, I was flabbergasted that they took it. I turned around, painted it on the exterior and sold it for 350,000 within six months. Um, and, but I had the convenience of, of knowing that I could, I could handle it. And I was embarrassed to give the offer, but I was like, I got to do it. And my business partner looked at me when those words came out of my mouth, she just turned around, beat red and walked out. <laughs> um, and so you, you kind of have to, you, you have to train yourself to negotiate. Um, but back to the original issue. So the, the sequence that happened with this property, the, the, um, the office complex is that I found it where all deals go to die, which is LoopNet. Um, I found it as a derelict property that was way overpriced and I had watched it sit there and sit there and sit there. And so I approached the real estate agent that I did know. I approached the bank that I did know. And I said, look, I'm willing to do this, but these are my conditions. And I gave my price exactly upfront before appraisal because I already had, I already knew what it was worth. There's a variety of tools that I, I use to determine value and also have experience in the market. I don't think that we should be doing deals in markets that we don't have a lot of experience at. And so I really know areas and neighborhoods really well. And if I, I can probably visualize what that block looks like and give you an idea of what I think the stability is and the crime rates. And I can tell you what schools they are. I think you should know your, your community really well where you plan to invest. I think if you're gonna invest in a community that you don't know, then you better have somebody on the ground that does know. Um, I think that that's a mistake to invest with somebody that's re investing remotely themselves and you're trusting them. I feel like you have to have feet on the ground in the community that you invest. It may not be you, then you should be a little bit passive and let the other person be take the active lead. I want to connect a dot here and, I, and, 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 and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking of it like your physician mind, which is, which is so inquisitive and so, um, uh, so smart that you're saying basically you need to be a doctor or have a doctor who's already performed the surgeries, who's already gone through the medical school and as well as has owned and operated on these properties before you invest. And either you're the operator or someone else needs to be the operator because otherwise if you don't know the anatomy of the physical parts of the building and the structure, the characteristics, the streets, right? How are you going to have capital blood flow into this thing, right? You might, you might have an arm that's fallen off and the blood's just going to flow out. Is that a, is that a fair summary? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, you, if, if you had a liver cancer, you're not going to trust somebody that's never done 500 liver surgeries. And they probably have been under the tutelage of somebody that's really, really good. And they've learned from them. 
but you're not going to trust that liver surgeon to go up and do a surgery on your brain. They probably know the tools, but it's a different neighborhood. It's a different characteristic. And so each area, um, you better really know that area well. You're not going to trust your liver surgeon to do your kidney surgery. You're, you know, you're not going to trust somebody that does bladder work to, to work on your feet. Um, each neighborhood is separate and distinct, and you have to understand the specialty of that area. And if you don't, you're going to bite, it's going to bite you. Absolutely. So well said. And then you had a second thought. And I also think about a titanium spine. You got to have a titanium spine when you're going to negotiate. And if time is on your side um, and you've been patient with your capital and you and you know the market, you know the area and you're watching deals that have, you know, gone to loop, loop net to die. I like the way you put that. Um you know, uh, th those are the positions you have the opportunity to negotiate the best in having a titanium spine to be patient and methodical and not in a rush. Uh, that I think brings the whole time part together. Any other thoughts on time? Yeah, I mean, the, I'll give you another example that's, that's classic. So look at the auction model. Time is not on your side in the auction model when there's more demand than supply. In, in the auction model, there's a supply of one item and the demand is all the bidders. And so they're competing against each other. So the price goes high. So if you look at a lot of the commercial real estate auctions right now, the demand is very high and the prices are unreasonably high. And a lot of times those bids fall through because people have buyer's remorse. They way overbid, they way overprice. And these auction sites that are commercial are getting ridiculously high prices, but the prices don't stick uh, because the buyer has remorse. And that's because there's a very limited window to examine that product. And that's that's the classic time it was not on your side. So I do buy at auction, but in auction situations where the supply is high and the bidding is less. So I, I bought a lot of buildings and assets at auction, but where they had 500 things for sale and there were 10 people in the room bidding. I try to find that asymmetric area where my supply is greater than my demand on the entry. On my exit, I always try to figure out how to get a higher demand and lessen the supply. Uh, and so I try, to, I try to find as many buyers as I can to increase my price because it's not just me buying it. That's when I make my money, but I don't realize my money till I sell it. And so I have to make sure that there's adequate demand when I sell it. And I want to be on the other side of the equation. I want to create time pressure at that point. Excellent. So let's dive into a little bit now on the tax side, because we understand the acquisition, the purchasing, the time. And now we talked about the big thing that has to do with taxes, right? Which is, which is also a big part of, of, the, of the lifeblood of the capital flowing in and out. And so we talked about inflation and taxes. So let's, let's dive into that a little bit. And um, what um, what your thoughts are on that, and how you've best been able to use the legal loopholes such as cost segregation, uh, the 1031 exchange, and now I know you're looking at the deferred sales trust. Uh, walk us through um, that. Uh, your thoughts on that. So, with regards to taxes, you you have a couple different elements. You have the property tax itself. So every property that we acquisition, because we're acquisitioning at a much lower price than the previous owner, we we go and we fight the, the tax rate on it. We try to figure out how to fight the tax rate because these properties are publicly listed and we we were the successful 
purchaser. And so, you know, if it used to be a $5 million basis and we got it down to 365,000, that's gonna save 70% of the property tax. And so until we get it fully occupied, uh, we can get that property tax reset. So that's element one. Element two is how are we going to maximize our depreciation and can we get a cost segregation study done at a reasonable price, um, get the land value excluded from it, and then figure out what the depreciation is on the individual elements and how quickly we can depreciate them. And at the same time, always monitor those things that we can expense and those things that we have to depreciate and capitalize. Um, and so that's, that's part of the ongoing dialogue that we have with our accountant um, and with people that do cost segregation studies. So we're always trying to figure out, you know, how, what is the most efficient way to get a cost segregation study done for each project? And then on the exits, you, you know, you, you, hopefully you've made good money. If you, if you've lost money, well, then you don't really have to worry about it because you can take that, you, you can take that loss and take it against your income. Um, you take it against your passive income. Um, if, if that's, if you're not a qualified real estate professional, the issue that if you've made a lot of money though, is how do you roll it over without losing half of it to the federal government and paying taxes on it? Because at the end of the day, you're going to pay taxes. The question is when you pay taxes and if you can defer the payment of taxes as long as possible, and you can transfer it to your heirs, their cost basis is going to get reset and you never really have to pay taxes then. You know, you, you walk out by death and, and that's that's a, a whole different estate planning tool, but th that's a tool that you can utilize because they're they're going to be on a stepped up basis when you die. Um, and so there's an advantage to that. And there's a lot of nuances. I'm not giving legal or accounting advice. I'm just these are the thoughts that go through my head when I evaluate stuff. Um, so I'm always looking at how can I maximize my time and defer the payment of that tax and then still acquisition on the other side at the lowest possible cost um, and then sell at the highest possible level. And, and always always balancing, always writing that wave of time because at different times, some properties can be worth a lot and some properties can be worth a little. Um, and you know, also look at the geopolitical events. Um, that I think that that is a huge impact. Uh, and if you bury your head in the sand and assume that everything is gonna be the way that it was, I think you're gonna make a huge mistake. And I think the geopolitical events um, have a very significant impact in real estate, even though real estate is hyper-local. Excellent. And so now I want you to tie in, because I know you're you're looking, for listeners who don't know, but Gurpreet's looking at the Deferred Sales Trust, maybe for the first time in depth, and he's had a chance to spend some time with the tax attorney on the Deferred Sales Trust, myself and uh, my business partners. And so just curious, what, uh, compared to the cost segregation and the 1031, which is most folks are, are familiar with, what about the Deferred Sales Trust, Gurpreet, has, has piqued your interest and curiosity and potentially is a good solution for you? Yeah, so cost segregation um, is the ability to deduct a certain amount of the value of your project today while you own it and on your current taxes, and it reduces your payment right now. The 1031 is a way to shelter your income when you sell the thing. The, the, the DST is a way to avoid the 1031 and not have to suffer the time penalty and free up your hand to negotiate at whatever time 
you figure is appropriate. And it allows you to sit on the sideline or it allows you to accelerate when needed and accumulate your capital. So let's say that you sold something, you got a million dollars for it net and you haven't, but you got that now and your next proceeds are not coming for nine months or a year, but you need $3 million for a project. And then your next proceeds aren't coming for another six months from another project. You could accumulate all 3 million, um, but you can't do it in today's dollars. The DST is a way to accumulate that over time and then take advantage of it when you have all of the money that you need for a bigger project. Uh, it allows you to maximize your leverage, accumulate your capital, and then deploy it when it's appropriate for you. Yeah, very well said. And also add to that too is a brand new depreciation schedule. Because one thing about the cost segregation is that you're accelerating the depreciation in for, instead of like a 27 and a half year for multifamily, you may be doing it in 15, 10, seven, five year increments for different components of the property. And then, um, <clears throat> and then the next property, if you do a 1031, your depreciation schedule travels, right? Which is not so good, right? Which is, you know, you get, let's say you had a $10 million deal fully depreciated and you bought a same $10 million deal equal or greater value, well, you have no depreciation schedule on that new deal. You need to buy a bigger deal, such as like a $15 million deal. Now you have an extra five, whereas the deferred sales trust is powerful in that once you're in the trust, you're not doing a 1031. Therefore, if you use the funds to go buy that new property, it's a brand new depreciation schedule. So walk us through the power of a full depreciation schedule versus a partial or none. Yeah, so, and that's one of the things that, I'm really intrigued with because the only way, if, if you hold your property for a long period of time and with the accelerated depreciation, a long period of time may only be three to five years um, because accelerated depreciation allows you to get a lot more of it depreciated right up front. But you have to, when when you take, when you use the 1031 and you're rolling that over, that depreciation's rolled over. So uh, the classic example is if you bought a million, if you, if you made a million dollars on the project and you've already depreciated a million dollars, so it's a two million dollar total project. You're 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 going to depreciate a million dollars, and you're carrying a million in your new project. You only get to restart again at that two million point for the depreciation, and that's a big problem. Um, you then you can't actively depreciate that that initial component. You pre pretty much have to triple your product product deal every time in order to maintain your depreciation. You don't have to do that with a DST. You could be about the same value or a little bit higher, a little bit, you know, in that same range and still take advantage of, of that, that deal. Um, and the other thing that I like about it is, you know, I, I tend to find a good deal. I tend to sell a good deal um, and then buy multiple smaller deals that are equally as good, but didn't cost me as much. Why do I want to overpay? If I can buy a $5 million building for 300000 why would I want to buy $5 million for $5 million? Why not buy it for $300,000, get it to $5 million? Um, I just sold a building simultaneously as the week before that I bought for $2.2 million for $3.4 million that I bought it the previous year. So I made a million too. And I was able to put that aside and not even tap that money and hold on to it until I can find the appropriate deal for it. Um, I, I think that the the flexibility is is what people should should recognize and if you're a real estate entrepreneur um because i i don't think that we should even use the word real estate investor i i think that that's a misnomer i think investors are people that live on the edge and kind of look in 
And I think entrepreneurs, which is what we are when we deal with real estate, we're living this thing. We're, we're swimming it. We're eating it. We're, we're, we're just embedded in it. If you're an investor, you probably need to be passive. If you're an entrepreneur and you're, you're the deal engineer for this, I mean, you're, th this is all that you can, you're swimming in this environment. You got to know everything about it. Um, so this is just a, a side note that I just, I, I, it always bothers me when people tell me that they're real estate investors. I'm like, but you're doing everything. You're, you're, you're having to deal with every single element of this. You're running a business. It, there is no real estate investment unless you're totally, totally passive. Um, and I have passive people that invest with me and they're my investors, but I, I'm the person at the front line and the GP making sure that it's done the way it's supposed to be done. So well said. I think when your book, Real Estate Entrepreneur, comes out, uh, I'll be the first one to buy it, repeat, because there's so much wisdom and, and so well said. Words do matter. I want to I want to ask one last thought on 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 something with the deferred sales trust as it pertains to the estate tax and just estate tax in general, because we kind of touched on the stepped up basis, which is really really a neat part about the 1031. It maintains a stepped up basis, and your kids, you know, can could if they inherit it correctly they can receive a stepped up basis and still and walk away tax-free. However, it doesn't take it out of the estate tax, right? You're still, if someone's worth $50 million and all 50 million is inside of the taxable estate, right? They may get a stepped up basis to 50, but they're gonna pay 40% on whatever the above and beyond the exclusion, which is 22 million married about right now and about 12 million single. Um, set to expire in 2025, you're looking at 12 million married, probably about 6 million single. The deferred sales trust, on the other hand, you can take it all outside the taxable estate. So a lot of my clients, before they find us, um, they're they're doing some gifting. They're doing some family limited partnerships. They're doing some some um, you know maybe some life insurance to offset of it, off, offset some of that. But they haven't been able to take it all out because they can't get it out fast enough. Whereas the deferred sales trust in one single deal, one transaction, one day, not only can you sell, let's say, that thirty million dollar asset, but move it outside your taxable estate. Talk to us a little bit about maybe either estate taxes you've had or, or, or challenges that you're looking at or potential friends and family that you know of and what that would mean um, if indeed what I just said all, all can be done. Yeah, so I'll give you an example that I dealt with with somebody that was co-investing with us. They, they, were, they were putting in some money and their biggest fear was how am I going to transfer my assets to my kids? And he was trying to shelter about $5 million that he wanted to transfer. And it was very, very specific. And right now that wouldn't be a problem, but it could become a problem if your underlying basis is high. So if you, if you right now, if you got 20, $30 million, um, you know, over 22 million, you, you could have a problem. And he particularly had $5 million that he was trying to shelter because he owned a very large company um, and there was about $5 million that he was going to have to pay. And he's older, he's in his eighties and, and, you know, he, he was worried about it. And so he had gotten life insurance policy that was costing him $15,000 a year to shelter that $5 million. And at that point, you know, I was looking at him, I was like, look, you're paying $15,000 every year and it's going to keep going up. You're in your eighties. 81, you're going to be paying 20,000. 82, you're going to be paying 25,000 because the life insurance company knows you're not going to live forever and they're going to keep charging you more and more and more. And even though you have this incredible plan, it's still going to cost you a fortune. Um, why not 
eliminate it and come up with an alternative tool. And before I had learned about DSTs, we were trying to figure out different ways for him to creatively do it, put it into trust, do it into family trust, and, and to, to do it in other ways. So after I found out about DSTs, I was like, look, you could have a one clean swoop and get all of this out and not worry about it. Why wouldn't you do it that way? And, and so that's, that, that was the conversation that we ended up having is, why pay an annualized fee of fifteen, twenty thousand dollars when you could make a clean swoop of it and get it out and not have to worry about it? And yep. you could add more money to it later. Yep, yep. So well said. And also too, the other thing that a lot of folks may overlook is within six months of the estate passing, the assets, the assets must be sold or refinanced, the, the tax must be paid. And so the the timing thing comes back into case. Who knows by the time you pass and your state passes if the value is going to be high or low, or if your kids are going to know you know, have the sophistication to be able to negotiate properly to sell well or to refinance well and to pull the cash out. But within six months, whatever that amount, that forty percent must be paid. So why not just eliminate all of that headache now? Sell the assets prior to move them outside the taxable estate. And also full disclosure, you do not you do forego the stepped up basis when you do that with the deferred sales trust. That's full disclosure. However, your kids can step into your shoes and then continue to just receive those payments and keep it in the deferred sales trust corpus, right? And so they're, they're but at the same time, they got a brand new depreciation schedule. So there's a number of ways to, to look at this, right? And that's why we have capitalgainstaxsolutions.com. You can go to you can get a free consultation to learn more about this, talk with the tax attorneys and myself to kind of help guide you to see if it's a good fit. Also, we don't charge them less than if you do the deal. So that being said, uh, Gurpreet, any last thoughts on that before the lightning round? No, I, I think that, you know, it, the, the key thing is what you guys do is provide time. You provide time that you can't get on your own. And I think that time is more valuable than money. I, I can make and break money, but I can't make time. And so I have to rely on other people's leverage to get that time. And so that's why we, we came to you guys, because you're providing us leverage on time that it, it's, it's like sudden new time travel. It's, it's a whole different tool. Um, it's not going to make me look any younger, but it, <laughs> it, it's going to allow me to have more time flexibility that I can't create on my own. Thank you. I couldn't say it better myself. Thank you so much for sharing that. So, Gurpreet, ready for the lightning round? Here we go. Sure. Let's go. Knowing what you know now, if you could go back to your 25-year-old self, or maybe it's your 14-year-old self, right? Because you got started so so early, and, and I love that. What's the one golden nugget you would make sure you would do? Um, get deeper and more niche early. And so I love learning everything about everything. And sometimes chasing too many squirrels all at once is a problem. And I wish I had gotten more niche early. I relish the experiences that I've had. Um, I've owned five restaurants. That it, you, do you know how to make a million dollars in restaurants? I'll no. tell you. Start with $10 million and open a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> You'll end up being worth a million. And so it's, you know, it, I have to tell you that it, there are a lot of projects that I've done because I was totally intrigued by them. Mm -hmm. But I wish I had niched down faster mm -hmm. and, and figured out, my highest and best use of my time and my money and and really understood it better earlier that's beautiful. what i would tell you beautiful that's a great answer thank you so much for sharing that what's the one book you've recommended or gifted the most in the past year um there's not one particular book i i read a ton um the pumpkin plan is one of my favorites um but 
there's there's a whole host of tools that you can find. I tell you, I almost find more value in in looking at YouTube and looking at some of the the channels on YouTube. Um, Peter Schiff is somebody that I really respect, and I think he's a great economist. Um, there's there's a minority mindset. Uh, Jaspreet is a really good nuts and bolts person. Um, it depends on what product or project I'm working on. I'll, I'll deep dive into that area and I'll use YouTube because it has contemporary information um, that is really useful. I still read a lot, but not as much as I'd like to read. Um, and so I, I, a lot of books I find are fluff. And so there's usually solid nuggets of maybe 10% of the information is unique and special. So I try to figure that out quickly. And so that I don't have to read the entire book because 80, 90% of it's usually fluff. Well, really well said. And then back to the time aspect too, you know, perhaps you can get through a YouTube video and in 10 or 15 minutes that a whole book might take you two or three hours and you're going to find the gold nuggets quicker. And it's also interactive, right? And you can see the body language, the tone of voice, the, the such. So I think that's uh, really well said. I like that a lot. And the pumpkin plan too. I think that's uh, Mike Michalowicz or Mike. Mikowski, uh, I think. Mikowski. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Um, give me a mobile or digital resource you recommend for your business. Um. So I do a lot of analytics. My favorite resource right now is PropStream. I have no relationship with them, but if you're looking at doing analytics and you're trying to find property or you're trying to identify who owns what, or you're looking at it, PropStream is an amazing tool. I use that tool every day. Um, I certainly use a whole host of electronic tools, but PropStream is one of my favorites. It allows me to narrow down and niche down. Um, and then the other tool that I love is something called MindNode. MindNode is on my laptop, it's on my iPad, it's on my phone, and it's how I take notes for myself uh, because I'm very visual. And so it allows me to create diagrams of projects for myself and connect all the parts. Um, it's really good for people that you know have flights of ideas and want to really quick quickly take a note and remind themselves of it later. Um, I, you know, it, the the concept of some of the technology we carry around in our he hands is amazing to me. Um, but that technology is, is coming at a cost. It's coming at a cost of the, the future of, of jobs. Um, and so we, you know, we, it, it's something that we have to think about consciously, which is going to impact real estate eventually. Um, so I constantly am looking at the global pictures and then narrowing it down. And so I use my, uh, my, the other tool that I use, the other valuable tool that I use constantly is just my, my phone because it has everything in it that I need. We all do. Beautiful. Mind node. That sounds fantastic. And prop stream. Love that. Right. Next, next question. Favorite leadership quote or theme that you strive to live by? Um, you know, who was it that said this? He was a boxer. Uh, Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. It was Mike Tyson. And it was one of my favorites because we all have a plan till you get smacked in the face really hard and you go, oh, well, that didn't work. Mm -hmm. And so the quickest thing is to expect that punch and to move out of the way because you can't stop the punch. And so you have to adapt before you get hit or at least roll with the punch and absorb the energy and get up. Um, so everybody has a plan till they get smacked in the face unexpectedly. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that I live by. So well said. Yeah, I love that quote. Favorite negotiation tip? Um, time. Keep, keep, 
you know, don't let them see your hand as in terms of time. Um, if, if time is on your side, it's an amazing thing. The other thing is be really good at le reading people and sit back and, and read people. Um, one of my favorite negotiating courses is a, a guy named uh, David, David Finkel, F-I-N-K-E-L. He runs a group called Maui Millionaires. He has a negotiation course that I kid you not, is probably the best that I've ever been to. And I actually went to that course um, to refine my skills. My mom is an amazing negotiator. Because, you know, we grew up in India and you negotiate for everything. You negotiate for the vegetables you're going to buy. You can negotiate for the clothes you're going to wear. Everything is negotiable. She would go to Target to negotiate. You know, she, she would negotiate everywhere. And so I, she was a great resource for me. But those, um, you know, it, it, you have to have some of these other tools in this society. And so neuro-linguistic programming and your ability to connect to people and use word skills to convey meaning beyond the words that you've actually said and to create it with an inflection tone is really valuable. Uh, but all the time, keep time as your friend. Time is your biggest, most valuable asset. If they don't realize that you, you're running out of time, your price will go down. If they realize you're running out of time, your price goes up. So much wisdom. Uh, can't wait for, again for the next book to come out on that, Capreet. Um, two more questions and we'll be all done. What are you curious about right now? Um, so a couple things. I am learning more about Section 8s. I historically have never used Section 8, but I suspect that we are short 20 million housing units. I also suspect that we're entering a period of time that we're going to have inflation later but deflation now. I also suspect that we're going to go toward more of a universal basic, basic income with a high degree of unemployment. I believe that COVID is a significant factor in this, but I also believe that our technological leaps have created opportunities where we're not gonna regain our manufacturing plants in the US. So we're gonna have a pervasively high unemployment rate for a long period of time. And so we're gonna have people that are not going to have regular income. And I believe that subsidized housing is going to become more and more important. Um, and I, so I'm trying to figure out how to align myself with the federal government providing housing and shelter for people, because I believe that those housing subsidies are going to be preserved because I think we're short 20 million units. Um, and I, I think that nobody is going to build those, those kind of units right away. It's going to take a long time. Uh, and so, it, but the, the need for them is coming up now. And so we're short and no one's, no one's going to be building those. Makes, so I, I, I want to figure that out. Makes perfect sense. Thank you for sharing that. I am now more curious about Section 8 now that you said that. Last question. This is my, probably my favorite question. And it centers around um, essentially um, your entire life story, your success, um, and all of, all of what you shared with us and where you're headed. Um, but in the meantime, how do you stay centered with in your values and then stay encouraged to charge forward to reach new goals given, you know, all of the pressures of, of, of the, you know, call it the world, call it uh, your businesses, your, your deals, right? How do you stay centered to, to in your values and how do you stay encouraged to charge forward to reach new goals? So, again, it's about niching down. I have very tight family 
and very close friends and not a lot of them. I probably have two or three people that are my close friends and I have my immediate family. So that pod of people. And these are the people that I see every day, every other day, you know, constantly. And we have lunches and dinners and, and it's a very narrow group of people. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't associate with people in the bigger world, but that narrow pod, it, it's kind of like the COVID pod. It's the, those are the people that I'm associated with. Those are the people that I'm connected to. And those are the people that you know I work out with and I hang out with. And those are the people I have dinner with. And that's it. It's my immediate family and the few friends that I have. And that's it. And then there's people that I know. And there's people that I know that are beyond that. And certainly I'm going to be friendly and appropriate, but I only really niche down to just those few people. I don't, I, I think that it's really important to, to be able to trust the people immediately adjacent to you and to really know that they're there for you and they'll do anything. And so that's, that's the narrow pod that you live with. And then thank you have the other people. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing. That's so rich. Um, I want to just, uh, thank you for, for not just, just all of the answers, but so much the wisdom, so much inspiration, um, Man, that's probably my my favorite interview I think I've had, and I've interviewed maybe maybe seventy people that have been amazing. But you've been fantastic, so thank you so much. I want to encourage you to keep using the gifts, the talents you've been given to bless others. Any last words for our audience before we let let, let you go? And where again, remind them also where they can find you. Yeah, so where they can find me is redpillcapital with a k dot com. Info at redpillcapital um, with a k dot com, um, and. You know, the only wisdom that I could really impart on people is realize that we're not here forever. And so use all of your skills to benefit the people around you and, and you will get rewarded in that process. Um, and that's what I try to do. I try to educate people expecting nothing in return. I mean, I, I take phone calls from people all the time. They, they hit me up and not because they're going to be part of my deal. I don't offer our deals because it's it's not something that we would necessarily do unless it was a bigger deal that we needed to raise a lot of capital for. Um, and so I always share information openly. I think that it's not going to hurt you to share that information. Um, and it, that couple of pieces of information that you have may make somebody's situation a lot better. And so that, that I always look for information from other people as well and try to change my own model internally. So I, I, I think that being inquisitive uh, is one of the keys of doing well. Thank you. Thank you, Capri. And uh, the go-giver mentality, right? Just give, 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 and expect nothing in return. If it comes, it comes. And and just and use the gifts you've been given to bless others. Thank you so much. Uh, and for our listeners, for listening, thank you for listening to another episode of the Capital Gains Tax Solutions Podcast. As always, we believe most high net worth individuals and those who help them struggle to clarifying their capital gains tax deferral options. Not having a clear plan is the enemy and using a proven tax deferral strategy such as the Deferred Sales Trust is the best way for you to grow your wealth. Hey, if you're considering selling a highly appreciated business, uh, commercial property, primary home, it could even be cryptocurrency, public stock, private stock, go to capitalgainstaxsolutions.com to learn more about the Deferred Sales Trust and how it can help you create a transformational exit plan and give you back that time that we've been talking about in this entire episode. Um, and so we thank you. Please re review, rate, and subscribe and appreciate you listening to the show. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. You have just listened to another information-packed episode of Capital Gains Tax Solutions with Brett Swartz. 
We hope you enjoyed today's show and found it helpful. Visit capitalgainstaxsolutions.com to access the show notes and to access more resources. Don't forget to leave a review and join us again next time.